The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. Giordo, Joseph Pierce, myself, Father Fascio. We continue to discuss the drama of atheist humanism by Father Andrew Duvac, uh, whose cause for canonization has been uh, brought in by the bishops of uh, France. I'm going to turn this over to Joseph, who's leading this discussion. But I want to make a couple of preliminary remarks, what were my own. Uh, first, uh, as we talked about previously, this book was written in the early 40s during World War II. And I can see now as I begin rereading it, that it wasn't really written as a book from beginning to end. Uh, he was writing articles on the same theme or a similar theme, which he then gathered together. And I think that uh, normally I don't like books that are just collections of essays or collection of articles. But in this case, my analogy is the statue of David at the Academia in Florence, where you have one statue, but you have to walk around it and see from different angles. And you can't see it from different angles at once. So you have to kind of do a Kreisian distinction as Balthus's circling thought. And so I think he does that very well. The second remark is, and I may have mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again if I have. Uh, I had a great blessing years ago to be up in a little chalet in Switzerland uh, with Lubach and von Balthasar. And Lubach had just come back from a trip to Crete, and uh, he was describing it to us all. And as, as, he, as he was describing it, I thought, you know, I'm learning more about Crete than I've been with him myself because he, know, he knows what to look for and, and what proportions to describe it in. And I find that here, I haven't read much of Nietzsche. He's certainly not all of Nietzsche. I've read some of Kierkegaard, but not all of Kierkegaard. But he's able to make these citations, which really kind of give you the central thought, the central idea of these thinkers, and show how they are what has led to uh, our present circumstances, you know, with the removal of God, the attempt to have humanism without God. So that's my preliminary remark. I turn it over to you, Joseph. Do you want to say anything, Vivian, before you, before? Okay. <laughs> in that case, all, all I would say is obviously we, we have a wonderful guide, as Father has just said, in Henri de, Henri de Lubac here. Uh, and I can assure Father Fezio and to anybody who's watching that I have read less Nietzsche than he has and less Kierkegaard than he has. So I do feel as I've been the one nominated to lead this discussion. It's the blind leading those who can see. But nonetheless, if nothing else, it's going to uh, make for an amusing journey. And as we're going to be looking at Feuerbach and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, we need something to make us laugh. So if I'm the object of amusement... That's fine. Um, so on page 58, which is where we're reconvening, so we got as far through this chapter, we did the first three parts of the chapter. The final part is 
part four, the dissolution of man. So I'm just going to you know, comment on things I have highlighted and invite you to interject, interrupt at any time you like, basically. Um, so on that page, we have a quote from Dietrich Heinrich Keller. Um, Even if it could be proved by mathematics that God exists, I do not want him to exist because he would set limits to my greatness. So I think what we have here, and this sort of sets the scene for Nietzsche, um, is that it's not about truth anymore. It's about self-empowerment. It's about power. Um, and so we, we're not any, anymore seeing the love of wisdom, philosophy as something which seeks for that which is true. It's that really we're going to seek for that which it gives us the power we desire. And, of course, once you have that, and I've said it many times, you know, Jane Austen, the connection between pride and prejudice once you begin with the presumption of pride, you're going to look at everything through eyes which are prejudiced. So at this point, I don't see how any of these uh, philosophers are going to show us anything of objective value. There's lots of psychological insights into them, um, certainly, but to what extent to which they're showing us the cosmos as it is, 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 I, is I think, arguable. So we have immediately after that uh, Martin Heidegger. Uh, basically, he, he precluded any possibility of even discussing the question of God's existence. So it's not even to be talked about. It's off the table. It's cancelled, if you like. Um, uh, so in the footnote here, page 59, Heidegger implies somewhere that there is no philosophical problem of God or, to keep to the author's terms, no philosophical decision touching a possible existence in view of God. In other words, that the whole question is... Uh, is not worth asking and in fact is beyond the parameters of the discussion um so uh and again we where's this coming from page 59 that they see their descent from prometheus right the one who rebelled against the gods whom they acclaimed was the first of the martyrs so the proto-martyr of pride uh is prometheus so we see where these people are coming from i, mean, I I, I, I don't want to carry on rambling. I've got other things I've highlighted, so I don't know if uh, I should pause for Father um, or Vivian to say something. Well, I would say this. I'm thinking about this. We're reading it. We're discussing it. Vivian and I are more American than you are, Joseph, in the sense we've been here longer as citizens. Uh, and the European influence here in Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and then Heidegger they want to have a theory for why we don't need to talk about God and justify it. We just don't do it. I mean, we, we just leave God out of the picture without having a theory. But I do think that their thought had an important influence on our practice, you know, over time. We'll see that as we develop here. Yeah, I agree. I agree that there's all sorts of practical, very real ramifications for the pride that they're preaching. But nonetheless, from the perspective of this engagement with anything which can be considered objectively real, I think it's questionable for the reasons that, well, the reasons I've just said, the reasons they've just said. That's the point. And again, um, the, to, um, to repeat what I said at the last session, this did come into American thinking very heavily through the transcendentalists, through Emerson, Harvard University. Uh, or maybe it was still Harvard College at the time. I mean, Roma uh, German romanticism and German idealism was all the rage in America, too. And, and German historical uh, Wissenschaft, I mean, historicism came right. in, too. And so even though maybe your average American 
uh, doesn't realize where uh, American intellect could trace American intellectual history. Uh, nevertheless, we've been greatly influenced by this thinking through the um, intellectual history of our own country. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, you'd know much more about that than than I would. I know, of, I know of the transcendentals and Emerson and people like that. But I read very little. Um, the one thing he does say, this is this is actually the Lubeck's voice on page 16, towards the middle of the page there. Uh, he talks about a vast accumulation of work, most of it distorted by a mass of prejudices, supplied them with a whole arsenal. So basically, you have a great deal of work by people who are geniuses. Right? These are geniuses intoxicated by pride, um, and with, with, with the, the work they do, which is distorted by a mass of prejudices. So, you know, they, they're not seeing things as they are. They're seeing things as they want to see them. But nonetheless, this applies a whole arsenal of weapons, you know, weapons of mass destruction. Um, and, you know, I, I think of, uh, again, Chester was a man who was Thursday, where the, the premise of that book is that bad philosophy kills far more people than serial killers, um, that bad philosophy can kill millions, uh, not dozens. And, and, page 61 here we see where it leads right if it is just about power then Karl Marx takes it one step further refusing to crouch any longer in the speculative concept why even talk about these abstract ideas anyway let's get down to business let's get down to practicalities he declared that the driving force of history is not criticism but revolution let's basically take to the streets and start killing people as a way of, of empowerment and, you know, there was a little bit of a precedent of this kind of let's just talk practical politics in Machiavelli. You know, let, let's get rid of all this sitting around and talking about abstractions. Let's just figure out how to get power, how to keep it. And so, uh, you know, in a way, Machiavelli was sort of the first uh, man of practical politics uh, and uh, Marx. And a, 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 large part of, a large part of Shakespeare's plays are an engagement with the evils of Machiavelli. I mean, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, this is an ongoing. It's uh, an ongoing our, thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, what else do I have here? So, uh, so Nietzsche then attacks, you know, it's very quickly that every, all, all other philosophers that have used, this is top of page 62, all philosophers that have actually used the, 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 the goal of reason, the goal of truth, are now basically dismissed as ruminants of the higher education, the common journeyman of philosophy, or as Wagner put it, the higher quarters of philosophy called the search called the search for truth. So basically, all of philosophy, all other philosophers are dismissed because they are in the quest for something objectively real and not something subjectively empowering. Um, so Nietzsche we'll, says... We'll see, going forward yeah. here, Nietzsche's criticism of reason and of Socrates and the whole uh, Apollonian side of, of Greek philosophy. Agreed, exactly. He gets on to Socrates in a moment. Um, uh, but then look at, but look at but if we can just go back to 62 again. Nietzsche rejects the last bonded, the last bonded. Where are you, Joseph? Joseph, where are you? 62. 62, uh, the, where on 62? The, 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 bottom, the bottom of the, the, the non-footnote part of the page. Okay. So the top half of the page. <laughs> um, Nietzsche want, wants to reject the la this last bondage, which is the world of truth. We have abolished the world of truth. Nothing is true, and then he goes further than that. I mean, it's all this is all logical. Once you're going to once you reduction out absurdum, right? 
So there, is the very idea of truth any more than a shadow of the dead God? You know, if we start about truth, we're starting about God again. We can't have that. So perhaps, indeed, he says, perhaps falsehood is a divine thing. Perhaps there is value, significance, a purpose in the lie, the artificial introduction of a meaning. So basically, artificially constructing meaning, in other words, <laughs> telling a lie, somehow is going to get us closer to what we want. We can't use the word truth. Um, but what, what we want than, than, than anything else. I mean, this is, to me, it's not, no surprise that, that, that Nietzsche goes mad because and his also ideas. Also, there's a divine thing in the sense that if there's no God and you say Homo Deus, as the Harari fellow has titled his book for the World Economic Forum, then man is God. And of course, whatever we do is our truth. Right. Uh, so, falsehood. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're in the, the divinity. Yep. Um, and as you say, Father, I can't see where it is here, but but about um, well, this uh, again, this is an image that recurs in the Man Who Was Thursday. I see Chesterton obviously knows much more Nietzsche than he lets on. Um, mm -hmm. The top of page sixty-four. The philosopher is quote a terribly explosive from which nothing is safe. And, you know, there's images in The Man Who's Thursday about this philosopher, yes, uh, yeah. nihilistic mm -hmm. philosopher who's going to, his head's going to explode. And, and yeah, their best image for us is, 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 is dynamite, not, not incense. Um, so, um, and then he, he, he works a prophet here. He's actually prophesying the consequences of his ideas. Um, again, still page 64. I herald the coming of a tragic era. Mm -hmm. At a, um, we must be prepared for a long succession of demolitions, devastations, and upheavals. There will be wars such as the world has never yet seen. Europe will soon be enveloped in darkness. We shall watch the rising of a black tide. Thanks to me, he wrote, a catastrophe is at hand, a catastrophe whose name I know, whose name I shall not tell. Then all the earth will writhe in convulsions. So uh, ironically, the madman's prophecies about his own teaching uh, proved to be all too true in the following century. De Lubach is writing this in the midst of World War Two. Yeah, after the Russian Revolution, after the rise of the Nazis, after the rise of, of Mussolini. Um, yeah, so it's it's all it's all becoming horribly true. And again, he, he sums up the top of page sixty-five that, in a word, it will be the coming of nihilism. Right. Um, the annihilation is the consequence. And then Nik Nicholas Berdayev, at the top bottom of page 65 there, as uh, De Lubeck says, he's rightly, what he's rightly described this, the death of God, the death of God is rightly called the self-destruction of humanism. We are proving by experience that, quote, where there is no God, there is no man either. Uh, and, you know, the victory of pride is its own self-destruction. You know, this... Uh Having learned from this book the link between Nietzsche and Wagner, uh, I recently was at my daughter's, and she has a whole book just on Wagner, and I was looking up the sections that deal with Nietzsche. It, it now gives a whole new understanding about what Wagner is doing, the twilight of the gods, yeah. the death of God, that this theme now is coming up in the music, uh, and and this, where there's no God, there's no man either, and so somehow even this new man who's going to emerge is still going to be a tragedy. And this 
reveling in the tragedy. They're seeing where it's going before it happens. They're ushering it in and they're sort of reveling in the destruction of it all. It's, it's, it's kind of an amazing phenomenon if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, what one would be, one would be, uh, tempted to, to suggest demonic possession, quite frankly. Um, uh, so before you go on, Joe, just a, just a yeah. typographical note, so to speak, uh, you know, page 64, 65, uh, on those two pages, half of the text is footnotes and probably more because it's smaller type. But the beautiful thing about the Lubach in this book is that you can read the text above the line there and you can appreciate it and so on. But if you want to go deeper, okay. he's got footnotes with lots of quotes there. It's mm-hmm. really a, it's a phenomenal kind of teaching device or a way of learning more about something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, for the most part, I think I've quoted one part from the footnote so far, but for the most part, I've avoided it just because I'm aware that we need to expedite the process. Yeah, that's, that's right. And in a certain sense, the footnotes don't add anything different but they just develop or or give evidence for what he's saying. So he's not just opining things about these people. He is quoting them, and he knows what they've said, and he's then he's analyzing it. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a beautiful sample of how an intellect works, you know. Mm-hmm. Listen to the other, appreciate what's good there, criticize if necessary, but don't just feel about it. Yeah, and actually, to to, to 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 prove your point there, so to speak, um, uh, page seventy, he, well, uh, he gives. I, I, I'm on page sixty-seven. I got something there. Yeah, sure. So let me just say this: because it just follows on from your footnote. Then we'll backtrack to sixty-seven. Okay, but okay. on page on page seventy, the footnote he d- does actually. It's a perfect example. He's talking about Nietzsche. He's not talking about uh, you know Dostoevsky, but in in relation to the top of the page there. At the goal of his dreams of complete emancipation, he does not perceive the impending menace of slavery. In other words, complete uh, self-empowerment actually leads to to slavery, um, a, a tragic misconception. But then he, got, then he quotes from Dostoevsky. And as we know that later in the book, he's going to he's going to talk about Dostoevsky. But we just So we get a literary insight coming into this philosophy here with a philosophical insight from the literature. Starting from unlimited freedom, I ended in unlimited despotism, says the revolutionary theoretician Shigalev in The Possessed by Dostoevsky. How many facts prove the deductions of this manic correct, says Lubach. Back to 67, Father. All right, middle of the page, and this is Lubach, and I'll call it a subtotal. It's, it's, a, it's a summary, prior to a larger summary. But he says, for man... This is the conclusion of this experiment of humanism without God. For man, God is not only a norm that is imposed upon him, and by guiding him, lifts him up again. God is the absolute upon which he rests, the magnet, capital M, that draws him, the beyond, capital B, that calls him, the eternal, capital E, that provides him with the only atmosphere in which he can breathe. And in some sort, that third dimension in which man finds his depth. I just love the way he's able to kind of summarize in a beautiful way uh, what we conclude from the experiment of Nietzsche and Feuerbach. And I would say there, Father, actually, that especially bearing in mind this is a translation, it's beautiful prose. 
Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's obviously a beautiful reason, but it's beautifully expressed. Yeah, he's not that difficult to translate because he's kind of like St. John in his gospel, not like St. Paul in his letters, that there's a, or like Tolkien, you know, in those his Anglo-Saxon one-syllable words, uh, he, he's able to say profound things with, you know, relatively simple concepts or ideas, you know. Onwards. Yeah, well, I have nothing else. Well, I've already said what I want to say on page 70, so I, I'm on a bit, so please feel free. To, I have nothing else to the final page of the chapter, page 72. Just Okay, well, I, I, mean, I had underlined what you had quoted from 70 there, but also, again, this is a robot with his limpidness and lucidness about, you know, two-thirds down, uh, spirit, reason, liberty, truth, brotherhood, justice. I pause here. These are not empirical material things. These are spiritual intellectual things. Colon, these great things without which there is no true humanity, which ancient paganism has half perceived and Christianity had instituted, quickly became unreal when no longer seen as a radiation from God. When faith in the living God no longer provides their vital substance, so this, you know, we, we take for granted the patrimony of Christianity and even the best of paganism. So this idea of want to, oh, let's get rid of God and, and turn towards man. Okay, you're going to get rid of everything which radiates from God, everything which God supports. And what are you left with? Yeah, nihilism. That is to say nothing. Nothing, yeah. You're left with the nothing that's left. Well, in the next page, he says, top of the page, Without God, even truth is an idol. Even justice is an idol. We make up our own truth, our own justice. Yeah. Yeah. All Which right. actually, ironically, Dulubak is is sort of uh, paradoxically agreeing with uh, with Nietzsche, because that's basically what Nietzsche is saying, is that we won't have God, we can't have truth, because truth is merely just an idol if there is no God. I mean, so Nietzsche understands it. Um, <laughs> um well, I mean, uh, I don't see a need to. Uh, I, I, I've, I've highlighted the whole of the final paragraph of the chapter, but I don't particularly see the need to read it. I think we've. Um, no, I know. I, th- I think one of us should read that. Do you want to read it, or I'll read it? You can read well, it. Yeah, a different voice, Father. I'm speaking too much already. So either you or Vivian. All right. Read well, it. I've been doing it for the last year and a half. So, but anyway, <laughs> uh, Nicholas Bajayev has spoken of a quote end of the Renaissance unquote and a return to a kind of Middle Ages for our era. Delubach asked the question, a new Middle Ages? Now, here, it doesn't refer to the high Middle Ages, but to what happens after the fall of Rome, the early Middle Ages. What's called the Dark Ages. <laughs> and for a reason, because every, everything's collapsing. Okay, go so, on. For two elements were mingled in the Middle Ages of history, barbarism and the church which endeavored to educate the barbarians by converting them to belief in God. And I will point out that in the year 1200, uh, which is before the High Middle Ages, there were 40,000 Benedictine monasteries in Europe. 40,000, not monks, Benedictine monasteries. And the population was maybe it was less than the U.S. is now. So that'd be like having uh, a thousand monasteries per state in the U.S., okay? Uh, and what were they doing? 
preserving, praying, of course, serving God, but, but educating, preserving manuscripts. So anyway, there's two elements were mingled in the Middle Ages of history, barbarism and the church, which endeavored to educate the barbarians by converting them to belief in God. Shall we revert to bar- So what will the Middle Ages be? Shall we revert to barbarism? A barbarism no doubt very different from the old one, but surely much more horrible, a centralized, technically efficient, in human barbarism, a.k.a. World Economic Forum, for example. I keep bringing them up, but it's a good example. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, Or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Or shall we, in conditions themselves very different, with deeper knowledge and lifted up by a freer or magnificent impetus, succeed in rediscovering the God which the same church still sets before us, the living God who made us in his own image? That, above all the problems that press for our attention, is the great question today. It was in 1943, it's in 2023, and it'll be here for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We're seeing it play. It's, we're seeing what he's talking about playing itself out eighty years on. Well, so chapter a, two. 
I must confess. You know, that's a bit, that's a bit, what a beautiful chapter. How much we've yeah. learned by just reading that chapter. Yes. How illuminating it is on our present moment. Go ahead, Joseph. I agree. Well, I've got to say, but by, by, by contrast, then um, I, I've got far less on Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. Um, um, I find them relentlessly dark. <laughs> you know, I can't think about, you know, Hilaire Belloc's uh, famous lines from his poem, uh, there's nothing worth the way of winning but laughter and the love of friends. I couldn't imagine Kierkegaard and Nietzsche ever writing those lines, um, which is probably doing Kierkegaard a great injustice. But I, I have got passages highlighted, but fewer. So I'm going to tell you why I have my first highlighted. It's page 84. So if you have anything before that, now's the time to speak up. Well, just to preface it a little bit, what I was hinting at previously, uh, the hero Siegfried and Wagner. So what happens to these men, no sooner do they debunk faith and religion and myth, now they're searching for one again. And what they resurrect is actually the pagan myths. And this is what this chapter is going to delve into quite a bit, is now the search for a myth to replace the ones that they've destroyed. And what de Lubac says in anticipating this um, on page... Um, uh, let's see. I'm sorry, I'm taking time here. Why um, are you looking for that? Well, yeah. I'll just say, you know, the first... Oh, here, I found okay, it. Go ahead. I found it. Okay, so on, on beginning on um, on page 67 at the bottom, if man takes... So first he starts out, we're going to get rid of the gods, we're going to make ourselves god. Then it's, oh, but wait, we kind of need, still need myth for some reason. We, so then we end up with the old gods again. So here's uh, Delubach pointing to this. If man takes himself as God, he can for a time cherish the illusion that he has raised and freed himself, meaning raised and freed himself from the God he once believed in. But it is a fleeting exaltation. In reality, he is merely a base God and it is not long before he finds that in doing so, he has abased himself. Soon the old forces of fate exercised by Christianity begin to weigh him down again. And what is the end of the mythological heroes they put before us? Like, oh, Siegfried was fated to die, like Achilles. So now we're back to the wheel. We're back to being pressed down by fate. We're back to ending in death. It's just yeah, so and, and The irony, Vivian, is that you know, we see this because you know, we can't create ex nihilo. Whenever we want to reject something, we, we leapfrog over it back to something earlier. So, you know, so, so neoclassicism was leapfrogging over the Gothic and Christianity. And then romanticism uh, was leapfrogging over the Enlightenment and uh, rediscovering the Gothic and the Gothic revival. So same thing here. We, we, have to, we, have to, we have to get rid of God. So what do we do? We leapfrog over the whole Christian thing and rediscover a rather warped, perverse. Because, again, as C.S. Lewis says, I'm, I, I think I'll get to this later on, but, you know, the, the, the C.S. Lewis says that, um, that the old the, the old paganism is like the virgin awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. You know, the, the new paganism is the divorcee who walks away from the marriage. So the difference between the spirit of those, those authentic pagan, Homer, for instance, and Nietzsche, is the, is, is the abyss that separates heaven and hell, quite frankly. So you were skipping forward, but I do want to mention some brief things at the beginning of this chapter. The first section is called The Birth of Tragedy, which, of course, is a, 
a reference to Nietzsche's book of that same title. And he says on page 74, new paragraph, uh, the birth of tragedy is a work of genius. So he recognizes that Nietzsche is a genius. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next paragraph. The principal theme of the book is well known. Well, it used to be well known among some, I suppose. The Nietzschean opposition of Apollonism and Dionysism between Apollo, Apollo and Dionysus, the god of reason and moderation and beauty and aesthetic harmony with the god of orgy and emotions and passions and so on. And again, this is another rejection of Catholicism in the sense that the Catholic Church is not either or. It's not Apollo or Dionysus. You know, it's reason and emotion. It's scripture and tradition. It's, it's well, faith and, and word. And there's a history of this even predating the church because as uh, de Lubach says on page 75, Greek tragedy, that marvelous apex of art, is the offspring of this union. In other words, this apparent dichotomy is somehow in Greek, the art of Greek tragedy brought to some sort of fruitful relationship. Yeah, and I mean, Greek, Greek tragedy is, is actually in conversation with Greek philosophy. I mean, to say it's, it, it, there is an element of, of, of faith and reason or art and reason going on here. So, uh, for Father and Vivian, we're at half an hour. Do we want to, to stop here? Uh... So I don't have much, but I do have some. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we hit. Well, I wonder, can we, can we make it to the end of this section, section one? It ends on page, we're on page 75, it ends on page 82. Well, I'll give that a go. That's, that's fine. I don't have anything for 84 anyway, so I'm done. So you carry on. All right. Well, he, he just says what you just said, Eve, uh, Eve, uh, Vivian, the bottom of page 75 there. The serene hierarchy of the Olympian gods, that's the Apollonian side, sprang from the frightening family of the Titanic gods and luminous Apollonism in its turn, emerges from the subterranean kingdom of dark Dionysus, so that one arises from the other, but they doesn't replace the other. Uh, and then he asked the question on bottom page 76, is such an ideal, that is to say, an aesthetic conception of reality? As a tragic ideal, by the way. The ideal is a tragic ideal. Right. And now de Lubach is asking, is such an ideal contrary to Christianity? Right. And, and, of course, the beauty is the way Christianity transforms it, overcomes it. Yes, there is a tragedy called the cross, but it ends in the resurrection. Right. Uh, so, uh, page 78, bottom of the paragraph there, uh, his way of looking at things was not primarily anti-Christian at that time, it was anti-Socratic. I mean, the idea of reason. Uh, Nietzsche himself, a couple lines down, in a large letter to his friend Erwin Rode, called his book his anti-Socrates. So you can see how if you're going to reject this beautiful synthesis that God has brought about, you know, we're always talking about these contradictory things and these paradoxical things and how can we bring it all together? Turns out we can't, but God can in Christ. The, the, the God who dies and rises. The, and so, it, but if you're going to reject that, then guess what's going to happen? You're going to get thrown back into the old struggle between these opposing things. And you're going to try to work it out for yourself 
what the answer to the struggle is. But it can't be Jesus. A priori, you've removed him. You're going to work it out for yourself by, by, by actually precluding any possibility of the answer. Yes. <laughs> Page 79, about eight lines down, summarizing here. Greek civilization went under because Socrates vanquished Dionysus. That's Nietzsche's idea. Next paragraph. What had Nietzsche against Socrates? Two lines down. Or one line. It was not, as he said later, his morality. A few lines below that. The grudge Nietzsche bore Socrates was rather a kind of rationalism. And we're going to have to see this distinction between reason and rationalism because uh, what is Nietzsche resisting? What will Kierkegaard resist? A, a rarefied Hegelianism, uh, a thinking everything out as if we could do it all with our minds and that, you know, the rest of our life was insignificant. Uh, well, don't you love this line from Dulubak on 80? There is no more disastrous illusion than this victory over illusion <laughs> celebrated as a step forward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the bottom of page. And again, why is, what is Nietzsche reacting against? He wants the life of the spirit. He wants mystery. He wants tragic heroes. He wants myth. He wants all these things. It's just that he is rejecting the church who is offering it to him because he wants it on his own terms. Absolutely. The 81 at the bottom. But the struggle between Dionysus and Socrates is not finished. Tragic thought, which seemed to be dead, will come to his own again. Uh, and then on, on quoting Nietzsche, I think, on page 82, uh, but three quarters down. Yes, my friends, join with me in belief in the Dionysian life and the rebirth of tragedy. The age of Socrates, Socratic man, is over. That's the whole Nietzschean program. Yeah. And the, I'm looking forward, Joseph, to next week's discussion because the section is called Myth and Mystery. And uh, the expression, initial expression of myth here is pretty negative. Uh, I want to compare that with Tolkien and, and uh, Socrates, Lewis's view of myth. But we'll do that. Oh, go ahead. I just look at this quote from Nietzsche himself at the end of that long extract on page 82. Dare to be tragic men, for then you will be saved. But the tragedy of the cross is what he doesn't want. Yeah. So he's going to have to find some other tragedy to die on, some other hill to die on. And, it's going to and, be and, what, and what exactly is, uh, is, is this tragic man going to be saved from? Right. Good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay. One, one question before before we finish. Did we want, but obviously we read up to the end of this chapter, which is page 111. Did we want to read on chapter three, the spiritual battle? Do we think we'll get into that next time? Probably not, but let's always read a chapter ahead if we can, yeah. just in case we run out of, uh, you know. Actually, yeah. that next chapter is fairly short, actually. Um, it is short, yes. Yeah, the one so let, let, let's read it. So let's read, read chapter three as well. It takes up to page 129, right. and we'll see how far we get. Very good. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Vivian. God bless you all. See you next week. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.